I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The Age of Lies is probably as old as time. When I was young, there was a comedian who did a Bristolian version of The Fall of Man. In the Garden of Eden, God says to Adam in the Bristol version, Adam, you've been eating them apples? And Adam replies, I never. God then says, what are all them bloody apple cores doing on the ground then? Adam's I never is the original lie. It's childlike and innocent in its palpable untruth. A more sophisticated lie is delivered by Zeus in book two of Homer's Iliad. Zeus sends a lying dream to Agamemnon, the leader of the Achaeans, in the form of ancient Nestor. The dream, let's call him fake Nusios, tells Agamemnon that Troy is about to fall. But now, listen well, I bring word to you from Zeus, who, though far distant, greatly cares for and pities you. He bids you arm the long-haired Achaeans for battle with all speed, for now you may take the broad-streeted city of the Trojans. Now, that is a lie, because Zeus actually wants to punish the Achaeans and doesn't want Troy to fall. But since the dream comes from Zeus, Agamemnon reports it to his fellow leaders. The real Nestor is understandably sceptical about what his dreamlike doppelganger has said and murmurs, had it been any other Achaean who informed us of this dream, we'd call it a lie and have nothing to do with it. Then something extremely odd happens, which reveals a lot about lying, generally, in fiction and in life. Agamemnon, having been lied to by Zeus, decides to stand up in front of the Achaean soldiers and lie to them about Zeus's lie. He doesn't say, Zeus says that if we attack today, we're finally going to kick some pesky Trojan butt. Instead, he says, we've lost. It's time to go home. Great Zeus, Kronos' son, has snared me in a crushing delusion, harsh, harsh god that he is. Once he promised and bowed his head in assent that I should sack strong-walled Ilion before returning home. Now he's turned to vile deception, orders me back in dishonour to Argos after the loss of so many men. So come then, let's all agree to do as I say. Pull out with our ships, return to our own native land, since now we shall never capture Troy of the wide streets. Now, why Agamemnon lies to his soldiers in this way is a mystery to me and to most commentators. Many see it as a piece of reverse psychology aimed at provoking the Achaeans to a final assault. But this series of lies, Zeus to Agamemnon, Agamemnon to the Greeks, has a powerful effect. Lie generates lie, and fake news generates chaos. After Agamemnon's lying speech, Homer compares his audience to uh, the sea towards which the troops bolt in order to set sail for home. The ultimate consequence of Zeus's lie is swirling elemental rage. 
The assembly was stirred into motion like the long sea rollers of the Icarian deep, which winds from the east or south roil up, rushing on them from the clouds of Zeus the father. Now, the obvious place to begin a discussion of the relationship between lies and fictions would be with Homer's Odysseus, that great storyteller and liar. But the series of lies in book two of the Iliad is a better place to begin because it displays two key features of lying which have tended to be neglected but which speak eloquently to our age. The first is that lying depends on a predatory intimacy between the liar and the lied to. Zeus knows Agamemnon wants to believe that Troy is about to fall, so that's what he tells him. Agamemnon knows his men want to go home, so he tells them that Zeus has told them to do that. The second key aspect of lying, which is illustrated by the Iliad episode, is that although liars often think they know what effect their lies will have, they're often wrong. A lie can generate unpredictable emotions and indeed spawn more lies. Zeus doesn't know that Agamemnon will respond to his lie by lying in turn, and Agamemnon, presumably, doesn't want to provoke a wild stampede to the Greek ships by his own attempt to tell his audience what they want to hear. Human beings are complex non-linear systems and you mess with their sense of reality at your peril. Now, the relationship between fiction and lies was particularly fraught for the Greeks because they didn't have a word for fiction. Hesiod's Theogony uh, has a passage in which the muses declare, we know how to tell many falsehoods that seem real, but we also know how to speak truth when we want to. But the muses don't explain how to distinguish between falsehoods that seem real and truths. And the lack of a simple word analogous to fiction in Greek was probably one reason why Plato was so uneasy about poets and the lies they supposedly tell about the gods. That distinction between fiction and lies seems more or less self-evident now. A lie is, in the words of Bernard Williams, an assertion the content of which the speaker believes to be false, which is made with the intention to deceive the hearer with regard to that content. And that definition makes it relatively easy to distinguish between fiction and lies, um, because a fiction, although it's not true, is not intended to deceive. But the suspicion that all forms of non-true narrative were a kind of lie remained so deeply entrenched in Western culture that that very simple distinction took a surprisingly long time to establish itself. It's sometimes traced back to a a remarkable passage in St. Augustine's soliloquies from about 386 AD. But the fictitious, I call that which is produced by makers of fiction. These differ from the misleading in this, that every misleader has a desire to deceive while not every fiction maker has. For mimes and comedies and many poems are full of fictions for the purpose rather of pleasing than of deceiving. And almost all who make jests deal in fictions. But he is rightly called a misleader or misleading whose business it is that everybody should be deceived. Now, translations of this passage generally presented as stating a clear distinction between fiction and lying. 
But actually, St. Augustine's Latin tells a slightly different story because he calls the lie intended to deceive, phallax, fallacious, which is fine. Um, but the contrasting term, which usually gets translated as the fictional, uh, Augustine actually calls the mendax, which is, of course, the origin of our word mendacious. And that creates an audible strain in the argument because Augustine's qualified defense of fiction depends on a distinction so linguistically fine that it's barely a distinction at all between the fallacious, on the one hand, the lie, uh, and the mendacious, the fictional, on the other. But there is at least the outlines of a distinction there. The liar aims to deceive, the writer of fiction does not. The category of fiction also depends on another kind of distinction between texts which describe the plausible or things that are likely to happen and those which record or purport to record what in fact happened. Only the latter could lie since the former doesn't claim to be true. Although this distinction seems easy enough to make, the particular way in which it was developed in the Roman rhetorical tradition had major consequences for the long-term relationship between lying and fiction. The first-century rhetorician Quintilian included in his Institutes of Oratory a description of that part of a judicial speech called the narratio. And this is the narrative about the alleged crime which the orator wishes the juries to believe is true. And Quintilian says that in the narrative, the orator doesn't need to say the truth, but should rather describe things in a way that is plausible or like truth. The ideal way to do this is to create what he calls enalgaia, or the kind of vividness which will make your audience believe your version of events. So Quintilian says, I'm complaining a man has been murdered. Shall I not bring before my eyes all the circumstances which it's reasonable to imagine must have occurred in such a connection? Shall I not see the assassin burst suddenly from his hiding place, the victim tremble, cry for help? Now, the Latin word for this kind of vividness, or energia, intriguingly enough, is evidentia, which is the root of our word, evidence. For Quintilian, however, evidentia isn't a set of facts that show X to be the case. It is not the apple cores that show that Adam has been eating the apple. It's a persuasive tool. Evidentia is the dash of vividness juice that makes it more likely that the jury will swallow your story rather than that of the other guy. And Quintilian also associates energia or evidentia with the power of an orator to arouse passions in his audience. When a narrative has evidentia, emotions will ensue just as if we were present at the event itself. So the vivid probability of narrative evidence could just drive your jurors wild and you'd win. And it would do so whether the narrative was true or just something that looked like truth. As Cicero had said, that thing is plausible, which generally happens, or which is a matter of general belief, whether it is true or untrue. And there's the rub. These rhetorical texts provided the foundations for thinking about the nature of fictional narrative and they potentially gave an enormous strength to the figure of the vivid liar. The liar is potentially the double of the author who creates circumstantially plausible narratives which elicit overwhelming emotions in his audience. 
And the figure of the liar, of course, acquires additional strength from the fact that liars, like Zeus, like Agamemnon, and like most authors too, know or think they know what's likely to move their audience. So good liars are canny psychologists who can offer truth-like statements directly targeted to what they know their audience wants to hear. And that close relationship between liar and audience is worth pausing over because the Western philosophical tradition, as we met it in Bernard Williams, um, has generally considered lying from the perspective of the liar. Analytic philosophers have tried to determine what kind of statement a lie is, and moral philosophers have argued about when, if ever, it might be defensible to lie. And these discussions generally focus on the intentions of the liar rather than the role of the victim. But the victim's prejudices and assumptions about what's likely to be true do play a key role in determining the kinds of statement that a liar can get away with. Lying is a social act which is crucially dependent on the beliefs of the person lied to, whom I will call the lie The words generally used to describe the lie victim, gull, or in the philosopher Cicela Bock's favoured term, the dupe, implicitly ascribe weakness to the deceived and deprive them of agency. But the Homeric lies with which I began, Zeus to Agamemnon, Agamemnon to the Greek army, tell a slightly different story. These lies are part of a wider social and political world and make use of ideas of authority to manufacture plausibility. Nestor and Zeus and Agamemnon, they aren't the types to lie, so you believe them. But these lies are also calculated to appeal to the beliefs and desires of their recipients. And that feedback between the liar and the lie has immense psychological significance. It's why in fiction and in life, lies can have such a powerful effect. If they take us in, it's because they work with our beliefs about what's likely to be true. And that's why the discovery that one has been lied to can give rise to such emotional chaos. When a lie is discovered, it isn't just that trust has been betrayed. It's not simply that Miranda, hello darling, she's watching the video, uh, Miranda discovers that Colin has been in the arms of a glamorous Russian spy rather than, as he said, in the library. Um, The lie is actually made to see herself and her desires as manipulable and herself as credulous. And the fury of being lied to grows in part from a splatter of self-hatred at discovering one is the kind of person who can be deceived. And realising one is a lie exposes one's perceptual vulnerability. And it can make one's grounds for believing anything at all seem fragile. And that makes lies in life dangerous but it gives liars immense power in fiction. Since an effective lie is tailored to the belief systems of the lie putting a fictional character within a fabric of lies, as Henry James often does, is a really powerful way to explore the nature and perceptual limitations of that person. And although that fictional technique was to become common in the novel, the most influential literary instance is, of course, Shakespeare's Othello, a play which, not coincidentally, derives from an Italian novella. 
Iago is Othello's echo chamber, amplifying and replaying to him all of the things that make him feel uneasy. He's black, he's not Venetian, he lacks the soft parts of conversation that chamberers have. And Iago is a master storyteller who creates around these fears a plausible narrative embellished by evidentia in the sense of plausible detail. He can invent a false but vivid story in which he hears Cassio talk in his sleep about sweet Desdemona. He also provides evidence in the form of Othello's handkerchief to prove that Desdemona is dallying with Cassio. And the handkerchief is a piece of evidence which straddles the ancient and the modern senses of that word. It is at once a work of fiction vividly embroidered with magic in its web to make it as lively as possible, and at the same time a piece of material evidence, literally material evidence, which proves there is a sexual relationship between Cassio and Desdemona. And these vivid fictions uh, enable the play to build up and then release the unpredictable, violent, emotional responses of the lie Othello is presented with evidence and plausible grounds for believing a reality which corresponds to his fears. And like Homer's Achaean soldiers, he is potentially as wild as the sea. Like to the Pontic Sea, whose icy current and compulsive course ne'er feels retiring ebb, but keeps due on to the Propontic and the Hellespont, E'en so my bloody thoughts with violent pace shall ne'er look back. T.S. Eliot famously declared that in his final speech before his suicide, Othello is cheering himself up. But it's probably better to think of Othello in that final speech as attempting to reconstruct the narrative of of the life he thought he had before a liar stole it from him. He's trying to create a narrative of his former exploits, which is both vivid and true. And say besides that in Aleppo once where a malignant and a turbaned Turk beat a Venetian and traduced the state, I took by the throat the circumcised dog and smote him. Thus! And with that concluding thus, the dagger sinks into his own flesh, aligning vivid narration with physical reality. Othello's dying speech is an attempt to create an alternative to the world of probability, plausibility and misleadingly credible evidentia into which Iago has plunged him. And Iago says when he's accused by Amelia of lying to Othello that I told him what I thought and told no more than what he found himself was apt and true. The first clause of that statement is a lie, but the second is not because the lie is a person who is fed to destruction with what part of him wants to believe. Othello also suggests something else about the role of liars within fiction. The liar is the intimate double of the author who creates plausible narratives within a fiction. By showing the liar's narratives to be false, fiction can establish its own kind of emotional realism. The real story, the one that matters, is the tragic narrative which ends and smote him thus, rather than Iago's lies. 
And the exposure of a liar is one way in which fiction can distinguish itself from lies and claim to be offering its readers something more than the simple wish fulfillment which the liar offers to the credulous. And that is the role very often played by liars in realist fiction. And the best example, the most beautiful here, I think, is Wickham in Pride and Prejudice, who is a sort of downmarket rewrite, really, of Iago, isn't he? When Wickham denounces Darcy to Elizabeth Bennet, he does exactly what the best liars do. He tells her what she found herself was apt and true, or in the terminology the novel invites us to use, he talks directly to her prejudices. Wickham knows that Elizabeth thinks Darcy is proud and unpleasant, so he says that Darcy's father meant to provide for me amply by leaving him a living, but when the living fell, it was given elsewhere, and the passive, it was given elsewhere, um, amidst the crucial fact that Wickham had in fact renounced the legacy. Lizzie, who is taken with Wickham but no fool, is inclined to regard truth as depending ultimately on documentary records or what we would now call evidence. So she asks, how could his will be disregarded? And Wickham claims, there was just such an informality in the terms of the bequest as to give me no hope from law. Sob. A liar builds belief on the presumptions of his audience and presents as evidence things which he believes will be self-evident to the listener. Hence, the more the lie reveals her desires and beliefs, the more the liar can operate upon them. Elizabeth exclaims, How abominable! I wonder that the very pride of this Mr. Darcy has, has not made him just to you. Wickham, the inheritor of Iago's ability to echo back the language of the lie in order to amplify their emotions, confirms the truth of her observation. It is wonderful, replied Wickham, for almost all his actions may be traced to pride, and pride had often been his best friend. It has connected him nearer with virtue than any other feeling. And hearing her own judgments endorsed in this way, Lizzie is overwhelmed. Elizabeth went away with her head full of him. She could think of nothing but of Mr. Wickham and of what he had told her all the way home. A persuasive narrative, backed by apparently vivid evidence, be it true or false, can generate uncontrollable emotions, provided it is rooted in what the lie wants to believe. Now, the exposure of Wickham's lies comes in a letter from Mr. Darcy. And that letter stiffly displays a very different kind of truthiness from Wickham's. It's presented within the novel not as a seductively intimate conversation, but as a document which can be read and reassessed and reread. And that simple fact reminds us that in the age of Jane Austen, the concept of evidence was evolving towards the modern sense of quasi legal te testimony. So Darcy's letter relates that Wickham wrote to inform me that he did not wish to take holy orders. He also says that after Wickham had squandered the money he was given in lieu of a living, he later applied to me again by letter for the presentation. Now Darcy isn't vulgar, and he isn't so vulgar as to say, I can prove all this because I've still got those letters in my desk at Pemberley. But that's surely what he wants to imply here. And a key distinction between the truth-teller and the liar in the age of Jane Austen 
is that the truth teller is rich enough to, to store and retrieve material evidence. He has a library. He has a desk. He can keep the stuff. Now, Elizabeth Bennett's response to Darcy's letter is Jane Austen. I think it's the best chapter in Jane Austen. Um, it's a, it, it identifies truth with a frustration of what we want to believe. And it identifies lies as the fictions towards which we're drawn. Astonishment, apprehension, even horror oppressed her. She wished to discredit the letter entirely, repeatedly exclaiming, this must be false, this cannot be, this must be the grossest falsehood. And when she'd gone through the whole letter, though scarcely knowing anything of the last page or two, put it hastily away, protesting that she would not regard it, that she would never look in it again. But of course she does. The lie E is caught between the truths she wants and those she fears. And as Jane Austen puts it, for a few moments she flattered herself that her wishes didn't err and that Darcy is lying rather than Wickham. Well, our wishes do err, but a seductive liar makes it look as though they don't. And for Jane Austen, one of the main ways fiction establishes its moral seriousness is by representing someone learning to resist the allure of a plausible liar. Lies are akin to romantic fiction in that they are a species of wish fulfillment. Learning to resist the allure of liars goes along with resisting not just Wickham and his fine jacket, but the passionate affairs and erotic elopements described in popular sentimental narratives. And that might make it sound as though serious fiction is ultimately concerned with just resisting the pleasure principle, with slapping the wrists of the fantasy and telling it to simmer down and get real. But fiction generally wants to have it both ways, It wants to deliver plausible inventions which have their own kind of allure, while at the same time differentiating those inventions from the seductive untruths of the liar. And Jane Austen can pull off that magical fusion of wish fulfillment and the reality principle largely because of the social foundations of truth-telling in her world. The truth-teller is a man like Darcy, who has a desk and a library, and that means he'll also have a big house and a fortune. And if you're lucky, he'll also have a chest like Colin Firth. And, you know, all Collins are eternally grateful, aren't they, to uh, Colin Firth for bringing a bit of sex appeal to what is the least sexy name in the world. Um, And that fact about truth-telling in this period, the social foundation of it, makes it possible for Elizabeth to renounce the romantic fictions of a placeless liar like Wickham and still end up with every wish fulfilled, in love, and, moreover, as mistress of Pemberley. How much of this has changed in our present? Well, it's now said, with perhaps tedious regularity, that we live in a post-truth age, which radically differs from anything which has come before. Sages and hacks alike grumble that the rot of postmodernism has formed a toxic alliance with online disinformation to dissolve the secure foundations on which truth supposedly once rested secure. These claims, I think, radically lack historical perspective. Um, Of course we live in the age of lies because the age of lies is, is without beginning and probably will be without end. Some things have changed, but a lot of things are the same. 
And there are grounds for thinking our world has more in common than we might want to think with what has gone before. And the best evidence, to use that very slippery word, to support that claim is, of course, some statistics. And we all know there are lies, damned lies, and the Google Books Ngram Viewer, uh, which is an online statistical tool which allows you to search for the frequency of phrases within a data set of extremely poorly transcribed and often misdated texts from about 1500 to about 2012. Um, now, the Ngram Viewer isn't always right, but when it suggests that the phrase fucking liar um, emerged between the end of the Chatterley Band and the Beatles' first LP, um, I think that's like pretty plausible note, doesn't it? Um, and if you believe the Ngram viewer, then um, damned lies are slightly past their peak. You can see it's sort of dro drooping off there. Um, and the phrase lying politician uh, was far more common in the late Victorian and Edwardian periods than it is today. Though, of course, it is possible that today the phrase lying politician has simply been eaten up by its near synonym, lying bastards, which you, <laughs> you can see is on the right. Um, but the most thought-provoking index of change in the language of lying is the n-gram graph for the phrase living a lie. And that graph is still on the up. Um, but the phrase appears to have originated around the 1840s, which was perhaps the greatest period, uh, greatest decade of the earlier English novel. And living a lie has become a euphemism for a marriage which carries on in appearance but is not sexually fulfilled, or for self-deception about one's own sexual identity. And it makes sense, I think, that this phrase should have emerged during the, a period in which those phenomena were not so shocking as not to be thinkable, um, but still so shocking that they could only be described through a, a euphemism, you live a lie, rather than being gay and married. And in the 1840s, as in Jane Eyre of 1847, you might have a mad woman in your attic to whom you were married, but you would keep it secret, so you live a lie. And the concept of living a lie, of grounding your entire being on something you know to be false, is surely one of the deep psychological foundations of the novel as we know it. It goes along with the idea of a plot as a process of discovery in which a lie creates overwhelming emotions is discovered and its discovery creates overwhelming emotions of a slightly different kind. And one of the deepest structural components of the bourgeois novel is that plot of uncovering a lie or a self-deception and thereby creating the illusion that reality is established. And that is part, I think, of what realism means in our literary tradition. And this takes me to my main thesis, which is we aren't actually post anything very much, let alone post truth. Indeed, my most fundamental belief about cultural history is that we still have much more in common with the emotional structures of the Greeks and Shakespeare and Jane Austen than we might want to believe. And that's why re reading literature is important. It helps us understand where our least comprehensible emotions come from. The nexus of lies, deception, and unpredictable emotions, which I've teased out of the Homeric poems and traced through the realistic novel, is still a fundamental component of our super-sophisticated postmodern psychologies. However, the material world changes much faster than the human mind or the languages which shape it. 
We no longer believe that rich people like Darcy, who have libraries in which they can store documents, are more likely to tell the truth than the sons of estate managers like Wickham. In each period, credibility is associated with a slightly different range of qualities, and through time, uh, different kinds of people and different ways of speaking have come to be regarded as markers of truthfulness. In that very limited respect, we might be regarded as belonging to a post-truth age if truth is given the highly restricted sense of a set of cultural configurations that establish the plausibility of one particular kind of witness on the basis of his social and economic status. But it's quite likely that the concept of truthfulness has changed more through time than the concept of the lie. So although the ways in which people experience and think about truth and evidence have changed a great deal, the way human beings think about and respond to lies hasn't changed nearly so much. Even if we're not quite sure what the truth is, we know what it is to be lied to, and we all know, don't we, that sense of wild and self-savaging anger that comes from being a lie. Now, I'm old enough to remember when uh, buses would usually speak the truth. If they said National Express on the side, you'd take the express bit with a pinch of salt, wouldn't you? But a bus that said Leicester on its front would usually go to Leicester, provided, I, I'm really old, uh, provided it wasn't attacked by highwaymen. But now buses have learnt how to lie. Um, and we have a Prime Minister who, when trying to fabricate a personality for himself, claimed to spend his time fabricating buses. Um, and it's also tempting to embody the age of lies in the phallosiloquent Boris. Phallosiloquent, such a good word for the Prime Minister, because within the sound of that word, there is the word phallus, isn't there? I mean, it's just such a good word. Um, but the phallosiloquent Boris, imagine if this new Agamemnon um, had been uncowardly enough to have testified to the Supreme Court about his reasons for proroguing Parliament. One could imagine him saying, well, blimey, um, this old Dr. Zussi geezer in a beard sent a dream that told me, Bojo, old chap, you really must prorogue Parliament or I'll toast your testicles with a thunderbolt. So I did. Um, OK, Dom, you can take the beard off now, mate. I think they've bought it. Um, you could imagine that very easily. The history of lying makes us believe that where there are lies, there must be a liar. But fiction can and perhaps should educate its readers to question their grounds for wanting to believe things. It is so tempting to embody the age of lies in individuals because the larger cultural history of lying has taught us to see it principally as a matter of one person misleading another. But that might be less true than it once was, as Peter Pomerantsev and Martin Moore in particular have shown with great skill Political lies now tend to be rather more than statements by individuals which are designed to mislead. They're partially generated by the desires and beliefs of the lie They can be algorithmically created to elicit a particular response from an audience that's been micro-targeted and which is fed little drips of misinformation which it's predisposed to believe. The guiding presumption of algo-lying is that human beings are as manipulable as white mice, and so the object is to develop a stimulus that provokes the desired behaviour. 
Send out the stimulus, irrespective of its truth or falsehood. Keep sending, and provided the white mice are in the majority and they all head for the cheese, then it's a victory. It doesn't matter if the stimulus is a lie that generates unpredictable side effects, like a loss of trust in institutions, or if the lie is fashioned to appeal to the white mice, so enrage the piebald mice that they start a civil war. It's short-term outcomes that count. Now, the algo lie might look like a counterexample to my paradoxical claim that the truth has changed more than lies. The algo lie is new, but it has two genealogical features in common with earlier, earlier forms of lying. The first is that it's generated by feedback between the liar and the liee. Although there's nothing sexy about algorithms and nothing sexy, I think, about focus groups, the process of lie-making to which they can contribute is actually analogous to the way that Wickham fashions his lies from Lizzie's prejudices. The algorithmically generated lie is also akin to Wickham's, or indeed to Zeus's lie, in that it elicits emotions in those lied to of a kind that those who fashion the lie hadn't entirely predicted and that's why the algo lie is proving so hard for democracies to cope with. It may produce the electoral results which the algo liars want, but it also generates wild emotional byproducts. Evidence, or vividness, as Quintilian knew very well, creates a direct pathway to the emotions of an audience, even if the evidence is not true. That's why the spread of the algo lie makes us want to transform our politicians into Pinocchios and ourselves into wannabe Othellos of towering rage and confusion. We want someone in whom to embody the lie, but the absence of a liar from the algo lie means that the rage of the lie loses its home and proper object. It spreads and hemorrhages within, turning into rage against our own collective gullibility or a more selective proxy rage against the nameless others who are sufficiently credulous not to see that they have been played. Being lied to can make us hate ourselves for being manipulable, but it can also make us hate other people who, as we might see them, are being jerked around by irrational appetites and ill-grounded opinions. Like Agamemnon's audience, we are roiled into motion like the long sea rollers of the Icarian deep whipped up by the wind. Fiction has not yet responded well to this new kind of lying. It's one of the stranger facts, I think, about literary history that the rise of the algo lie has coincided almost exactly with the rise of what's usually called autofiction or narratives which appear painstakingly to relate the lived experiences of their authors. <clears throat> Carlo V. Nausgaard's My Struggle, the overweight apogee of this form, is grounded in a kind of realism so detailed that it might be dubbed punitive realism. <laughs> Nausgaard punishes himself by relating his father's death in remorseless detail and by describing his own repeated premature ejaculations and episodes of self-harm. He also, though, punishes his readers by telling them exactly how many sausages he cooked for his kids on a particular evening and the precise meat content of those sausages. As Nasgard has said, 
My commitment was to reality. What I wrote about had really happened and it had happened as described. Now, it's potentially comforting for fiction to make that claim, since a key feature of truth from a narrowly psychological perspective is that unlike a lie, it doesn't have overt designs upon you. That's why we can talk about being lied to, but we don't talk about being truthed to. A liar knows exactly what he wants to get from you and believes he knows how to get it, but a truth teller doesn't claim to be telling you what you want to hear. Indeed, a truth teller might tell you at length things which you really don't want to hear about at all, like the meat content of the sausages served to his children on a particular night. But autofiction does still display buried deep within that unsteady dialectical relationship with lies, which has been such a key element in Western fiction. In volume six, spoiler alert, um, but very few people apart from me have got there, I suspect. Uh, volume six of my struggle, Nausgaard's uncle claims that the description of the father's death with which volume one began was all lies. And Nausgaard claimed that his father had been living with his grandmother for two years and that at the time of her, his father's death, her house was covered in shit and full of empty bottles. The uncle claims this is all untrue and that Nausgaard's father had lived with his grandmother for only two months and that the house wasn't a mess at all. And the uncle's accusation prompts a voice within the author which says, I was untrustworthy, mendacious, and had written the novel because I hated the Nausgaard family. And Nausgaard's way of silencing this voice is perhaps not surprising, actually. He becomes a sort of new Darcy, an embodiment of the documentary truth principle, who finds evidence which supports his own plausible narrative of events. I called Christian Sand and I asked them to send me a printout of Dad's medical records, which they did. From the records, it was clear that he had lived with my, his mother for a year and five months before he died. It wasn't quite two years, but it was a long, long way from the two months Gunnar, the uncle, had claimed Dad had stayed there. How could uh, he say Dad stayed there for only two months and that I was lying? Evidence, in that modern sense, taken from the records, lays to rest Nausgaard's anxiety that he's not a serial truth-teller, but a spectacularly egoistic liar. Autofiction distinguishes itself from lies by sticking to the evidence, and it's evidence not in Quintilian's sense of vividly realised tales, but in Darcy's sense of documentary records. And the escapism of fiction has become, in autofiction, an escape into what looks like a carefully documented world of endless, formless truth. And in that respect, my struggle might be regarded as comfort food for the age of lies. It resembles one of the most common but least plausible arguments about how we should cope with our supposedly post-truth age. We're urged by Matthew Dancona, born in 1968, to go back to the Enlightenment, to get our facts straight, to line up the documents, to fact-check the liars, then we'll lose. And those arguments are typically put forward by people who, like me, born 1963, and Nausgaard, born 1968, are too old to be digital natives, who can see but can't quite process the extreme power of the algo lie, which is delivered minute by minute to exactly the right smartphone and to exactly the right prejudices. 
And fiction, I think, needs to find a way of dealing with this new kind of lie. British writers of fiction from my generation have on the whole failed when they've tried to do so. And this is because, understandably, they've tended to become angry rather than trying to do the main thing which liberal fiction can do for a society, which is to be at once surgically anatomical in analysing a systemic social problem and willing to articulate that systemic problem through a plausible but fictional version of individual experience. And a large part of the problem actually is the rage out there, which many novelists haven't been able to control sufficiently to explore its origins in a way that would explain it to any but the like-minded. Algorithmic lies provoke a kind of anger that can easily become complicit with its target, The object of fury is the reduction of human beings to groups that can be influenced by evident falsehoods. The temptation is to represent that process by creating reductive falsehoods of one's own. Fictions about the lying prime minister, the gullible cab driver who believes the Daily Mail, the Fox News addict. And these fictions might appeal to like-minded readers and duly inflame them with righteous outrage. But if the problem is that the population is being split algorithmically into target groups who are believed to occupy distinct and several views of reality, then the solution surely is not furiously to serve your own target group with fictions that it wants to hear. That would be to make fictions which participate in the simplifications that they're condemning. And Middle England, 2019, by Jonathan Coe, born 1961, strikes me as a classic instance of this problem. It's a Brexit novel which offers all-you-can-eat comforting stereotypes, the xenophobic former Birmingham car worker, the wonderful East European immigrant cleaner, uh, while not having anything at all to say about the technologies which now influence and distort the opinions of those types. A little texting and emailing is the deepest Coe's characters get into the world of social media. And fiction, which recirculates perspectives on the present, which correspond closely to a particular strand of print or electronic media, is just not doing the job fiction should do. It isn't harmless comfort food, but comfort food akin to the lie. It knows what its audience wants to hear, and it says it. And the problem is that it will therefore sound like lies to those who don't want to believe it. And if the main literary consequence of this latest age of lies is to identify the audience for serious fiction with a small group which has has mutually sustaining and more or less identical political attitudes, then we should all be very afraid for the future of fiction. Might Ian McEwan born 1948, be the unhunky Mr. Darcy who cuts through these problems. Well, McEwen has always been willing to get scientifically down and dirty, and he has a career-long fascination with the warping effects of violent emotion. Atonement of 2001, extraordinary book, I think, although it appeared a couple of years before the Iraq war and at a point when the dissemination of untruths through social media was not yet a significant public concern, is perhaps the closest that that mainstream highbrow British fiction has yet come to evoking the age of lies which followed. 
Atonement, of course, aligns the imaginary work of the author with the fictional rewriter of history, who is also an outright teller of untruths, and it rests on a great volcanic base of love and betrayal and national and personal tragedy. But McEwen, like most people born before about 1990, I suspect, is probably just the wrong side of the digital generational divide to be able to assemble lies, digital media, and violent emotions into a novel which conveys the human consequences of the impersonal algo lie. So Machines Like Me of 2019 is really a version of the traditional novelistic plot about erotic betrayal and interpersonal lies. It doesn't finally matter all that much that one of the agents in this story of betrayal is a mechanical replicant of a human rather than a human whose behaviour is produced by continual feedback between experience and the algorithm that runs him. It doesn't matter all that much because Machines Like Me is really an erotic novella for the virtual age, but it's not really a fiction for the age of the algo lie. And that's because it hangs nostalgically onto the consoling fiction that lies are personal transactions with intense but small-scale emotional consequences. They can be impersonal and have national consequences. McEwen, of course, attempted to widen his scope in The Cockroach, his Brexit novella, which was produced at breakneck speed and published in September 2019, just after the Supreme Court had decided that the Prime Minister had acted unlawfully when he prorogued Parliament, and only five months after Machines Like Me. And The Cockroach also fails because it is at once too angry and too prone to personalise the lies. The story in which a Kafka through the looking glass cockroach wakes up and finds himself Prime Minister is, I think, funnier than the more po-faced reviews allowed. The conventional denial at the start that a work of fiction is based on fact becomes any resemblance to actual cockroaches, living or dead, is entirely coincidental, which I think is a good one. Um, it's also quite funny about lies. Um, the cockroach Prime Minister plants a fake news story about sexual harassment by a rival in the newspapers. And after this, he walked up and down within the confined attic space in a state of exultation. There was nothing more liberating than a closely knit sequence of lies. So this was why people became writers. It's a joke which is a perilous one, because, of course, only a cockroach prime minister could identify writing fiction with the dissemination of lies. And implicitly, we, the target readers of McEwan's fiction, know better, perhaps even smugly know better. Novels offer higher truths, don't they, which are distinct from lies, we might think, as we laugh. Now, I'm a critic rather than a creator of fiction, uh, and that means I find it easier to see what's wrong with things um, than to do anything better myself. And that makes being a critic sound like easy work. It's actually, folks, a dirty psychic burden, though none of us like to talk about it all that much. The critic, like the satirist, sees voids in the world that is and has to face the risk that those voids will swallow him up, will swallow him up because he can offer nothing to fill them. But the larger story I've just put, I've put forward here might help someone unlike me, and certainly younger than me, imagine what a novel for the new age of lies might look like. 
I can see that many features of the high Victorian novel, the strands of different people pulled different ways by versions of the same social forces, their interaction and their separation, could be used to create fiction for the age of lies. Uh, And that's what Ali Smith has tried to do in her um, Seasons series by charting the accidental collisions of different groups of British people. Though these novels are, to my eyes, also marred by the anger of the lie by proxy. That's to say, the person who's enraged, not because she's deceived herself, but because other people are deceived. And that seems to me the wrong kind of anger to fuel a novel. And it would, but it would take a really powerful imagination to transform the energies reserved in the traditional novel for treating erotic deceit into forces which could be released by algorithmically directed political lies. A novel which did that would have to avoid getting so angry that it simply emitted the thin wail of a Ramona. It would have to present its world as a multidimensional human problem rather than simply as a place in which people are reduced to types pulled hither and yon by the voice of the new Zeuses, the foxy lady liars on cable news, the gods of Google, the likes of Facebook. Channeling the anger of the lie into fiction is what the so far non-existent thing, the great British techno-novel of the 21st century, needs to do. Perhaps the outlines of that book have already been sketched by Shakespeare in Othello. The liar is the monstrous agent of emotional feedback who enables that feedback to grow in intensity until it becomes a scream and then finally destroys the lie and in the process the liar finally ceases to resemble a person at all. The novel I'm imagining would need to be at once inside the speed of the new media and inside the ancient emotional turbulence that results from being told falsehoods that one is predisposed to believe. It would need to get sympathetically into the heads of people who believed lies without suggesting that they were dupes or gulls, and it would have to run the dangerous risk of making those lies almost possess the compelling authority of truths. It's not a book I could write. Perhaps it isn't a book anyone could write, or certainly not until the wounds of this, to me, dismal Brexit day have healed a little. But if our present age of lies had one good consequence, it would be that book. Thank you very much. What happens if uh, the person being lied to knows he's being lied to, but doesn't, doesn't mind, doesn't care? I'm thinking that actually uh, there are a huge number of people who uh, saw the Brexit bus with a 350 million figure on the side and knew it was a lie and didn't care. (laughs) Um, Yeah, good question. Um, I think... uh, Well, I, I think that phenomenon is one explanation for the rage of the lie by proxy because the you know the person who sees other people being lied to and goes how can you possibly believe that um is 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 feeling angry partly because they know that the person doesn't believe it and is going along with it um but it's not it's not the 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 i can't think of a good literary example off the top of my head of a a person who uh is 
lied to and willingly deceived. It is quite a, I mean, it's quite a phenomenon in um, commercial transactions generally where um, everybody knows that nobody's telling the truth but everybody's in on, in on the game. Um, but I think that kind of transaction tends not to be a, a transaction that fiction's very interested in because there aren't many emotions at stake. There's only money. Um, but I, yeah, it, that, that is a very important phenomenon and it, it is part, very much part of the world that we are now in. Thank you. Um, you've talked about anger as if it's a disabling thing. Um, I'm interested in what you think about works of literature that have engaged with anger, like um, Dante's Commedia, Evelyn Waugh, um, just satire and the place of satire in general. Thank you. Yeah, um, thank you. Um, really good question. Dante is a particularly good case to raise, really, because there, um, his anger at Florence is a real anger that repeatedly spills through into this distant alternative world, and it's what gives often uh, a kind of violent realism to the scenes that he's imagining. Um, and the the figure of the angry satirist is is there, I suppose. You know, juvenile is the archetypical instance, and it does enable pe- people to write about their present through strongly realised types. I think where, and, and so yes, there is a very strong positive role for anger in literature. But I think the anger in the contemporary fictions that I'm talking about is anger that's too close to its subject. That there, there is a need to back off um, from intense emotion and I think in the, some of the contemporary fictions that I, I've been talking about that the, the anger at present events leads to a kind of description of reality which is serial so you go through day by day as, as, as Jonathan Coe does um, uh, or year by year through a, a story leading up to um, the, the United Kingdom leaving the um, European Union and it, he is wanting to see each moment as a, 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 um, a, a separate a, a separate thing rather than stepping back from the whole and looking from a distance and you know Dante just had a bit more stepping back I mean, he had a theological framework that enabled him to position his own anger within it and I think well, McEwan's Cockroach is the, is the most striking instance. I think uh, a book written in three months about the events that are just taking place just quite just doesn't quite have that space. But it's a very good point, and and you know there is definitely a positive role for rage in the world and in fiction. In your talk, you focus quite a lot on the the two parties um, in a lie um, and the possibility that the lie can have consequences which the liar doesn't intend. Um, I was wondering if you um, think that there's a a continuity in terms of how we look at lies which actually do achieve their purpose. So, for example, at the end of the Homeric cycle, the Greeks use a lie, the Trojan horse, to achieve what war hasn't been able to achieve in 10 years. And then you look at the modern age where, for example, Russia, America, different countries are accused of using algo lies to achieve in other countries what maybe armed force wouldn't achieve. 
I was wondering if you think that that's a, a sort of parallel in the way lies have been used by humans and recorded in fiction. Yeah, I think that's a, that, that is a, that is a, a good parallel. Um, uh, I don't know what more to say. <laughs> you have like these characters in fiction that you recognise as like the archetypal truth teller and there's a kind of recognition that we've maybe lost that in modern fiction but I would still say that we have that in society like you still might believe a kind of middle class white bloke so why do you think that we've still got it in society but not in fiction <laughs> you believe me <laughs> I mean yeah, um, I I wasn't really saying that we've um, that we don't have that. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I think I mean, histo- historians of science have talked a lot about um, the the sort of moral the role of the moral character of the experimenter and the social st- status of the experimenter in establishing the truth of what. Uh, the experimenter discovers. And it's really that kind of, of social construction of truth that I was talking about. And I wasn't really suggesting that um, we no longer trust Darcy types. We, you know, probably there still is a bias towards Darcy types um, uh, in, in our predisposition, predisposition to believe people. Um, what I was simply saying was that it changes and that and that credibility criteria for believing people um, change through time, and that those criteria I think change probably more than the concept of a lie. But yes, we certainly do still have performances of authoritativeness. Um, you have the stumbling middle-aged white guy uh, standing up spouting what is purportedly truth on the lectern, you know, and, and, and that happens, yeah. <laughs> so um, the Spanish writer Javier Maria said about fiction that unlike reality, it's something that can't be denied. So in the sense that Anna Karenina died by throwing herself under a train, that's a fact which can't be denied, whereas something in reality you can bring up counter-evidence, counter-arguments, and dispute a position. Um, So many of his books are obsessed with spies, with liars, uh, and many of them as well, they are about kind of concealed historical lies from Spanish history, so from the Franco regime. I was wondering whether, how could this kind of quality of non-deniability in fiction be used to approach more overt lies, so the, not, not the cover-ups of a dictatorship, but the kind of blatant lying of a Trump or a Brexit campaign? Fantastic question. Um, you know, it's like a lot of fantastic questions. I wish I had the answer. Um, but, um, yeah, well, I suppose at the end of the lecture, what I was trying to suggest was that, was that fiction has a power in dealing with lies and truth claims um, and that it can describe to a society what's going on in that society better than any other medium can do. Um, and in that respect, the, 
the sort of undeniability of the world of a work of fiction is a really powerful weapon. And uh, it's, a de- it's a tricky weapon to use because if you use it as a weapon, it can look crude and violent and, as I've said, sort of over-angry. Um, but it is it, you know, being able to create something that has its own autonomous cri- truth criteria built in and which therefore seems undeniable is a really, really powerful antidote potentially to the kinds of things that we are seeing in the world at the moment. And I think writers of fiction in this generation really need to get a handle on that, and I don't think they quite have yet. I mean, there may be other people who who, who I haven't read who have done so, but but the the ones I've read haven't. So, great question. Thank you. Um, Do you think that all lies are fundamentally the same kind of action in other words that you could take say an interpersonal lie that's that might be typical of the kind of fiction that you've described over a long period of time where for example you tell your wife that you're at the library but actually you're with the russian spy mm-hmm. and then on the other hand uh, a an, an algo lie something that's put out there to achieve some kind of power are, are they fundamentally the same kind of action or are we actually just dealing with different things i, th- I think they're much more different than i was suggesting um, I mean, the, the philosophers who've, who've written well about lying um, tend to make very careful discriminations of a kind that I just didn't have time to make between different forms of lying. I think the, the sort of the Bernard Williams definition uh, of um, an assertion that the um, utterer believes to be false, which she wishes the uh, audience to believe to be true, is, is at the core of... Um, uh, what a lie is but I think the social performances of lies or the, or the political implications of lies can be wi- wildly different um, and so the small scale interpersonal lies uh, are dependent on you know, other patterns of behaviour and deceit I, you know, I always wipe Tatiana's lipstick off my face before I go home saying I've been in the library and that sort of thing um, uh, whereas the, the, the political lies are much more driven by a straightforward end, which is power. And I think that does make a, uh, give one gra- grounds for thinking, I'm not saying it's not power in an interpersonal way either, but, but, but um, that does allow one to make distinctions between those different kinds of lies, which I think are actually you know, important to make. And if I were talking at greater length about lying, I would certainly make those distinctions. So thank you very much for encouraging me to do so. Hello there. Um, do you think that some forms of lying are more self-conscious than others? I see that you have made quite adroit use of cartoons, and in particular Pinocchio. Um, do you think that cartoons, for example, draw more, uh, are more self-conscious and draw attention to themselves as lies than other forms of f- fiction? It's an interesting question, yeah. I think that's right. Because um, the cartoon is saying... Um, <laughs> Here's something that's not reality in, in an absolutely overt way, but he's also saying, yeah, maybe is is reality. And I think different types of fiction, in a similar way, are um, transforming the world in, in different to different degrees and in different ways. Um, so yeah, I would say definitely the that different genres can can lie in different ways. Have I not? got to the 
nub of your question. I can see by your gesturing. I'm just interested in, in that particular um, story because obviously as Pinocchio lies, it's obvious to everybody around him that he's, that he's lying. It's a very yeah. sort of, you know, it's, it's a kind of, um, it's what we would like to happen, I suppose, yeah. when, when we are lied to. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. The, the physical... And, I mean, there is a sort of aesthetic version of the liar, isn't there, too, who just wants to do it, you know, who loves it um, and uh, takes pleasure in it. Um, so, yeah, there are many different types. Um, just building, I suppose, on the questions around sort of different types of liars, yeah. what about the position of a lie who becomes a liar by transmitting something that was a lie but they believed to be the truth yeah. and they pass it on yeah. to someone else. I suppose, uh, yes, because a lie can be contagious once it's believed. Um, I, think, I think, you know, if I were being St. Augustine, which, you know, I, I really am not... St. Augustine, yeah. Ask Tatiana, she knows. Uh, but uh, if, if I was being St. Augustine, I'd say that the person who, who repeats a lie not knowing it to be a lie is, is going to get to heaven, they'll be fine. But of course, um, uh, outside the world of theology, the, the thing that that person is doing is potentially quite bad because um, part of what is damaging about a systemic lie is the, is, is the spread. And I think um, there's... There's a wonderful remark by Umberto Eco, which I'm not going to be able to quote, uh, sorry. Um, but it goes roughly like, uh, in the information age, the responsibility rests with the receiver. That's to say, um, it does seem to me that there is a kind of moral imperative um, in repeating things to be confident in your grounds for believing them. Um, those grounds for believing them might go beyond your confidence in your source. Um, so in that respect, I am with, with sort of Matthew Dancona and people in saying, you know, fact check, fact check, because otherwise the, the lie who becomes the liar unwittingly can be doing moral harm, political harm. Thank you.